0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left Podcast, in which we shall take a look at the history of the war in Afghanistan. First of all, do you think it's only been going on for 20 years? Think again. It's been a lot longer than that. From British Empire building to Cold War gamesmanship, Afghanistan has been a center of conflict since long before American citizens bothered to take notice. And this is another of our experimental remix episodes, in which we sprinkle in some classic clips from our own archives, in addition to the kind of new material you're used to. So be sure to let us know what you think of this experiment. Clips today are from The Intercept, Counterspin, The Michael Brooks Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, Democracy Now!, On the Media, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, yes, I said Jon Stewart, and Newsbeat.
1: During most of the 1980s, the CIA secretly sent billions of dollars of military aid to Afghanistan to support the Mujahideen or holy warriors against the Soviet Union, which had invaded in 1979.
2: During the past 18 months, the Mujahideen fighting inside the country have improved their weapons, tactics, and coordination. The result has been a a string of serious defeats for the Soviet elite units as well as many divisions from the Kabul army.
1: The U.S.-supported jihad succeeded in driving out the Soviets, but the Afghan factions, once allied to the U.S., eventually gave rise to the oppressive Taliban and Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda.
3: That's the scene at this moment at the World Trade Center. Stan Daylor from ABC's Good Morning America is down. Uh, in, in the general of dan can you tell us what has just happened yes peter it, it, the uh, second building that was hit by the plane has just completely uh, collapsed
4: the entire building has just collapsed as if a demolition team set off when you see the old demolitions of these old buildings it God. pulled it down on itself and it is my not God. there
3: anymore the whole side has collapsed the whole building has collapsed
5: the united states was attacked by al-qaeda on september 11 2001 We're about to hit the 20-year anniversary of those attacks. They were horrific.
2: This group and its leader, a person named Osama bin Laden, are linked to many other organizations in different countries. The leadership of al-Qaeda has great influence in Afghanistan and supports the Taliban regime in controlling most of that country.
5: They caught America almost totally by surprise in terms of the public. The security state, was actually expecting these attacks, so that's a whole other story. But I think the public was really caught off guard by it. it. Was it was so surprising to people? I think that is part of why the notion of going to war as an answer to the 9/11 attacks was compelling for a broad range of the public.
2: And tonight, the United States of America makes the following demands on the Taliban. Deliver to United States authorities all the leaders of al-Qaeda who hide in your land. The Taliban must act and act immediately. They will hand over the terrorists, or they will share in their fate. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime.
5: What happened was essentially an invasion that should have been arguably a police operation. Ostensibly, the the U.S. government went there to go after bin Laden and the Taliban who sheltered him. But what's really striking about what we're seeing now and actually the negotiation process that has been underway between the United States government and the Taliban in Doha for the better part of 10 years now is that there was an opportunity to have that kind of a negotiation in the first months after the invasion of Afghanistan in October, 2001. And the response of the United States to that was, we don't negotiate with terrorists. And so, you know, what's happening now is really painful to watch on a lot of levels. One reason that it's painful to watch is that tens of thousands of people have died who did not need to die in this war. And that's not even speaking about the other kinds of damage, the the billions of dollars that have been spent. We have this military, we have this giant defense infrastructure that the people who are involved in that world and in that infrastructure, and there are many of them, need to feel relevant. They need to justify the gigantic budget that we have for these kinds of operations and for our military and it just it feels so wasteful and heartbreaking um, to think that this was this was kind of really a chance for people to spend money and play with their toys
6: about a 20-year war, and I understand that, but I wonder if you would take a minute to draw a bigger historical picture, because it's meaningful for the people who should be at the center of the story and yet somehow never quite really are, namely the Afghan people. This is more than 20 years for them.
7: Absolutely, and thank you for bringing up this point. I think the commentary that puts this war in a 20-year perspective is indicative of why the United States has failed so miserably in Afghanistan. The United States has wanted this war in Afghanistan to be about al-Qaeda in and 9-11, and certainly that's what Joe Biden tried to do in his remarks the other day. And the reality is that this is a living legacy of the Cold War. This war begins, I think maybe you could fairly start it in 1973 when the king is deposed. And since that time, same year I was born, 48 years ago, there has been nothing but political chaos or violence, war, in Afghanistan. And majority of that has been instigated to a degree and supported greatly by outside nations, chiefly the United States. And what makes the tragedy about Afghanistan even more tragic is so much of this war, so much of this violence is suffering, it's got almost nothing to do with the Afghans themselves. The United States and the Soviet Union in the 1970s look at Afghanistan as a forum of competition. Who is going to get Afghanistan to reflect their color on the map. Is Afghanistan going to be blue or is it going to be red? And so I think that's why you have these circumstances that unfold from that. In 1979, before the Soviet Union invades, the Carter administration launches a policy of supporting Islamist rebel groups in Afghanistan because in Zygmunt Brzezinski, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, in Brzezinski's vision The idea would be that we would utilize these Islamist rebel groups in Afghanistan to cause problems in Afghanistan, to bait the Soviet Union into invasion, and give them their own Vietnam. And this occurs six months before the Soviet Union invades, and so the Soviet Union does that. And the Soviet Union, of course, is certainly responsible for its actions, and one of the things we know about the Soviet Union's decision to invade Afghanistan in 1979 was that it was in many ways influenced by the American removal from Iran. You could find this in discussions from the notes from the Politburo from the time, but the Soviets are worried that because the Americans lost their bases in Iran, that the Americans are now going to go into Afghanistan. So even from this vantage point, you're right, 40 some odd years later, you can still see in our current decision-making how little of the United States' decisions about Afghanistan have been about the Afghans themselves. Certainly, nine eleven, where you're talking about an organization of less than four hundred people, Al Qaeda, four hundred people worldwide. Nine eleven attacks, where none of the hijackers were Afghans. Almost all of the planning, the training, the support for the attacks came from Pakistan, from Germany. The hijackers met in Malaysia and in Spain, possibly in the UAE or, or Qatar. And then, of course, we had hijackers here in this country for 18 months before the attacks. The most important training the hijackers received were in American flight academies and martial arts academies. But somehow it's about Afghanistan. And the United States, of course, is not the only one who is is culpable in this. The Pakistanis, the Iranians, Indians, the Russians, etc., Many different nations have been playing what used to be called in the 19th century, the great game, treating Afghanistan as if it is a real-life version of the game Risk. Exactly. And the Afghan people have just endured unbelievable suffering because of that.
6: And I was actually just going to invoke the game Risk. It's all like an abstract chess game, as it were, and U.S. media sort of present it that way and had no hesitancy to move the goalposts. We're punishing Al-Qaeda. No, we're saving women. No, we're building a nation state. It's as if the goal doesn't matter because you're just supposed to get behind whatever the U.S. is doing. Right now, U.S. media news consumers are seeing chaos and calamity, and it's being reported as being caused By the withdrawal of US troops. So, a a binary mindset says, No, I don't like chaos, put the troops back. Unfortunately, the general run of media coverage doesn't really stay at a level much more subtle than that. So, I want to ask you how do we gird ourselves? What should we be holding in mind as this very war framed conversation? swirls around us in the coming days and weeks?
7: I think we want to think that the events that are occurring right now, we have complete agency over Mm -hmm. and they're not influenced by the past, not influenced by history. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be very much aware of that. So in the case of, as you hear people say, why we shouldn't leave Afghanistan? I wish I was joking about this, but commentators, serious commentators, as People in D.C. would describe them. If we're not in Afghanistan, then the Chinese will be. That's what the Soviet Union said. If we're not in Afghanistan, the Americans will be. That's what the British said in the 19th century. If we're not in Afghanistan, the Russians will be. Turns out the Russians never had any plan to invade Afghanistan in the 19th century, but the British invaded Afghanistan at least three times because of that. So I think it's important to tie ourselves to history, to understand how the same things keep unfolding One of the things I think is important, too, is that, look, Joe Biden was in office. He was a U.S. senator when the Vietnam War ended. Just because something happened 50 years ago doesn't mean that our people who are in power making these decisions aren't the legacies of that. Just as I described the Afghan war as being a living legacy of the Cold War, it still exists. Take a man like Donald Rumsfeld. He was the Secretary of Defense when the uh, Vietnam War ended. Yeah. I had this experience one time when I was in the Marine Corps, and Donald Rumso came up to me, and he pointed out a portrait of Eisenhower that myself and a friend were standing in front of. And he said, you know how old I am? I'm so old, I used to work with that guy. And so you can understand that. A man who was in char- charge of the Defense Department, was in charge of the Defense Department at the end of Vietnam, had worked with Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower is old enough to have known and worked with civil war veterans. So we're not actually that far removed from history. So to think that what occurred in the 1970s in Afghanistan, what occurred in the 1980s in Afghanistan, what occurred in the 1990s doesn't have repercussions now is one of the reasons why I think that the media coverage and people's understanding of the war is so very basic, is so limited. Certainly, there's a legacy to this. There are events that occurred. There are reasons for this. Why would the Taliban have such popular support from the Afghan people? Maybe there's a history to it. Look, in this country, we talk about, if anyone was to say to any of us that the Civil War is a forgotten relic of American history and doesn't influence current culture, politics, society, whatever, we would say you're absolutely crazy. We have a media that reports about Afghanistan as if only what has occurred within the last week or the last month matters. Take, just for example, the Doha agreement signed between the Taliban and the United States was signed in February 2020. That was almost 18 months ago. There has been very little media discussion about what happened in those 18 months when negotiations were supposed to be occurring between the Taliban and the Afghan government. It's almost as if that time doesn't factor or matter. The reporting will say, basically, Doha agreement signed February 2020, May 1st, 2021. Biden says we're pulling troops out. No discussion whatsoever about how come nothing occurred? Why weren't negotiations successful? What prompted this to uh, play out this way, where the Taliban, in my opinion, basically said, hey, we've given you 18 months to negotiate. We're just going to take it now. Yeah. And as well as, too, just that type of discussion where the Taliban have agency, where the Taliban need to be understood as an army and a political organization that is not the narrative we have of these troglodytes in caves.
0: The following is the late Michael Brooks from 2019.
8: There was just a major piece of reporting in the Washington Post, basically documenting that throughout the entire Bush, Obama and Trump eras, there has been systemic lying and disinformation on the part of the U.S. government and different administrations on what exactly is happening in Afghanistan multiple shifting rationales for why we're there, constant efforts to spin and formulate a successes that are not existing. And basically, you have a war now that's longer than Vietnam. I believe Afghanistan is the longest ongoing war in US history that has consumed an incredible amount of lives. US soldiers, endless Afghani civilians, where you are in a situation where Basically, the Ashraf Ghani government controls about half of the country. The rest is by various factions of the Taliban. This has deepened and created all sorts of new problems in terms of the U.S. and Pakistani relationship. It has been a boon in some respects for the Pakistani intelligence services, ISI, who play a double game with the CIA and the Taliban. Everybody should read Steve Call's Directorate S book. It's also had an enormously damaging effect on Central Asia and on Pakistan. The war, of course, has been conducted most aggressively under Obama with the drone program in Pakistan that killed a significant amount of Pakistani civilians and caused a new layer of instability there. We don't know the exact amount of civilians because the drone program civilian casualty rates have never been properly measured, but we do know that all civilian casualty rates are skyrocketing under Trump. I'm going to quote... A little bit from Juan Cole, who wrote a great piece. We didn't need documents. America's trillion-dollar failure in the Afghanistan war has been obvious all along. Basically, a lot of reporting of Whitlock's articles focused on U.S. government lies and misrepresentations about progress on the war front. But this was all along obvious to anyone who knows anything serious about Afghanistan and Pakistan. Our Madison Avenue advertising culture gives the US government the tools to pull the wools over people's heads. Government spokesmen in the forever wars have just two categories, progress and slow progress. An a epoch- a epochal disaster, like losing a whole progress, is slower progress than we would like. And he goes on to just talk about the various massive blunders here. Let's go through a little bit of, of history here. This is George W. Bush. Remember, After September 11th, this goes back to the 1980s. This goes all of these relationships were formed during the US, Saudi, and Pakistani support of the Mujahideen fight against the Soviet Union. Then Afghanistan is abandoned. It's multi-warlord factions. The Taliban rise in the mid-90s. And initially, there's actually some really positive overtures with the United States because there's pipeline deals to be had. Osama bin Laden is there. They're hosting him in Al-Qaeda, and he's got a huge amount of money to dispense. And still almost certainly different links to various parts of the Saudis. So this is George W. Bush after September 11th. There's, of course, not going to be any strategic response. There's not going to be any humane response. There's going to be a massive bombing and onslaught against Afghanistan. And really importantly, this whole war on terrorism framework, even though we don't use that language anymore, is still 20 years later how we conduct all of our global military policy. This is still the framework upon AUMF, which has never been reformed there was just a massive military spending bill that of course the democrats totally rolled on that given to all saudi demands on their genocide in yemen that would allow the trump administration to use amf uh, aumf uh, money and authority to attack iran and does nothing to hold any of this back this is george w bush launching it back after the september 11th attacks several weeks after
2: good afternoon On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime.
8: Now, this went on for multiple years. And after initially claiming success by essentially putting the Northern Alliance into power, dispersing the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and again, a huge amount of civilian casualties, loss of US Afghanistan just kept going. And it was not successful. In fact, it was destabilizing Pakistan. There was all sorts of, not all sorts of reporting, it was still pretty underreported den of problems in the Karzai government, then Barack Obama comes along and he's not an anti-war candidate. He's an anti-dumb war candidate. So the invasion of Iraq is dumb and not intelligent, not a war crime. And we need to focus on the smart war in Afghanistan, which is pretty clear to anybody very early on with any historical awareness is unwinnable. But Obama still makes A Machiavellian calculation to surge troops in Afghanistan under military pressure and with political calculation.
9: This review is now complete. And as commander in chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. After 18 months, our troops will begin to come home. These are the resources that we need to seize the initiative while building the Afghan capacity that can allow for a responsible transition of our forces out of Afghanistan. I do not make this decision lightly. I oppose the war in Iraq precisely because I believe that we must exercise restraint in the use of military force and always consider the long-term consequences of our actions. We have been at war now for eight years, at enormous cost in lives and resources. Years of debate over Iraq and terrorism have left our unity on national security issues in tatters and created a highly polarized and partisan backdrop for this effort. And having just experienced the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the American people are understandably focused on rebuilding our economy and putting people to work here at home.
8: Now, Obama would actually make a very odd play, which is he would promise to pull those troops out after 18 months of going in. And then you heard a lot in this time period with General McChrystal and General Petraeus basically about replicating what they did in Iraq, which was sold as a surge that was effective, but really what it was going to Sunni leadership across the country and saying, look, we're going to protect some of your rights economically and otherwise. And here are bags of cash, which was much more persuasive than the surge but not replicatable in afghanistan for a variety of reasons including a huge amount of broader just political illiteracy about even just as an example the different ethnic factions inside the afghan context it continues on we're rolling right through including of course an accelerated drone warfare and the relationship of pakistan And then this guy became.
3: Thank you very much, Mr. President, 52 compared to thousands. And uh, we're doing a tremendous job. And as you know, a big part of that job is ISIS, certainly the biggest and Al Qaeda. And we uh, we've got them down very low numbers. We'll have that totally taken care of in a very short period of time. And we'll see what happens. Uh, The Taliban wants to make a deal. We'll see if they want to make a deal. It's got to be a real deal, but we'll see. But they want to make a deal. And they only want to make a deal because you're doing a great job. That's the only reason they want to make a deal. So I want to thank you. And I want to thank the Afghan soldiers for really, uh, I've spoken to a lot of you today, and you say they're really fighting hard. I was very impressed with that, actually. So I want to thank you. So that's Donald
8: Trump, who, of course, in the first couple of uh, months in his administration authorized an operation that killed multiple civilians right out of the gate when he became president, and then also dropped a massive payload bomb in Afghanistan in 2017. That was just- the
10: mother of all bombs.
8: Mother of all bombs. That's
10: only because they don't have a father of all bombs.
8: <laughs> and then uh, Lindsey Graham, the Ultra Hawk, has been saying, according to Indian media reports, that this could all end if the Pakistanis would just stop supporting the Taliban, which is basically like saying, yes, this could all end if we had immediate world peace or if the United States stopped supporting the intelligence services in Pakistan that support the Taliban. These things are slightly complicated, unfortunately, and there's a nexus of relationships that don't work for anybody. Three months ago, negotiations with the Taliban were canceled and they are resuming again as of yesterday. Talks between the United States and the Taliban resumed this weekend, three weeks after President Donald Trump abruptly canceled negotiations aimed at ending America's longest war. News of the, of the talks came just before the Washington Post obtained a report of more than 2,000 pages of government documents that they say it shows how U.S. officials for years have misled the public about the war in Afghanistan.
0: We depend heavily on memberships to fund the production of this show because having principles in the attention economy is bound to cost you, and that's definitely been the case for us. When the company that was selling ads for us way back demanded that we allow our listeners to be tracked and hyper-targeted with manipulative ads, we refused because we find that to be blatantly unethical and, in many countries, illegal when it's done without the ability to opt in or out, which is the case for all podcasts. Now, because many advertisers have gotten used to being able to hyper-target podcast listeners through other, less scrupulous shows, they're less willing to advertise with integrity on shows like ours. This has really been squeezing our finances and making every single supporting member we have that much more critical to our ability to produce this show. If you are a member, thank you once again. If you want to support the work we do, please consider becoming a member at bestofleftcom slash support. If you'd like to advertise with integrity to our audience while protecting everyone's privacy, you can reach me directly at j at Bestofleft.com. Thanks, as always, for your support. And we go even further back to Rachel Maddow from 2009.
9: And as Commander-in-Chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. We're in Afghanistan to prevent a cancer from once again spreading through that country. But this same cancer has also taken root in the border region of Pakistan. To abandon this area now and to rely only on efforts against al-Qaeda from a distance would significantly hamper our ability to keep the pressure on al-Qaeda and create an unacceptable risk of additional attacks on our homeland and our allies.
11: Tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, this year's Nobel Peace Laureate escalated the war in Afghanistan for the second time in just the first year of his presidency. In March, you will recall this president announced that his new administration had concluded a careful policy review of the options available in Afghanistan then, and had decided to send 21,000 more troops. To put that first escalation in context... This is what American troop levels were like eight years ago, the first December after we invaded. See that little tiny blip down there on the left? Uh, This is how they changed over time, all through the Bush administration and uh, through, frankly, the election of Mr. Obama. This is what's happened during President Obama's first year in office. And this is what he's just announced he's going to do by next summer. And then nine days after that, he flies to Oslo to get his Nobel Peace Prize. The president's speech tonight at West Point, in a way, is an awkward bookmark to the previous president's famous West Point speech when the Afghanistan war was only eight months old, not eight years old.
2: Our war on terror is only begun. But in Afghanistan, it was begun.
11: Turns out that wasn't very true. And eight years later, the next president is stuck explaining his choice among all the Frankly, pretty bad options available to fix Bush's supposedly begun war. But President Bush bragging at West Point about how awesome he thought things had gone in Afghanistan at that point is not what that speech is remembered for. President Bush bragged in a lot of places about how awesome he thought things had gone in Afghanistan, even as both Osama bin Laden and Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban, not only survived, but survived unscathed and stayed in business as militant leaders just now relocated eastward slightly. If Omar went from Kandahar to Quetta in Pakistan, that means he moved slightly less than the distance between Wichita and Topeka. No, President Bush's West Point speech is remembered not because he was uniquely wrong in his comments there about Afghanistan itself. He was wrong a lot about his comments about Afghanistan itself. That speech is remembered because it was at West Point where he unveiled what may have been the single most radical thing about his presidency.
2: Do you agree with the Bush Doctrine?
1: In what respect, Charlie?
2: Bush—what well, do you—what do you interpret it to be?
1: His worldview.
2: The Bush Doctrine, enunciated
3: September 2002, before the Iraq War.
11: President Obama tonight spoke at the site where President Bush unveiled the Bush Doctrine the proclamation that the United States would no longer reserve the right just to wage war against countries or forces that threatened us, but that we would wage war to stop the emergence of threats in the future.
2: If we wait for threats to fully materialize, we will have waited too long. The war on terror will not be won on the defensive We must take the battle to the enemy, disrupt his plans, and confront the worst threats. Before they emerge,
11: we must confront threats that might happen someday. And thus was born not only the justification for, in the name of 9-11, attacking a country that had nothing to do with 9-11, but also the maximalist Bush doctrine concept of America at war globally, indefinitely, against anyone at our own discretion.
2: Our security will require transforming the military you will lead, a military that must be ready to strike at a moment's notice in any dark corner of the world. We must uncover terror cells in 60 or more countries. All nations that decide for aggression and terror will pay a price.
11: The Bush doctrine was probably the single most radical thing about the Bush presidency because it dropped the requirement that the United States actually be threatened before we'd start a war with someone, instead saying that if we just thought we might be threatened sometime in the future, that would be justification enough for us now to start a war. It is a really radical concept, if you think about it, not only about war, but about us, about America. And it may have survived the Bush presidency. President Obama tonight explaining his second escalation of the war in Afghanistan, announcing that the 32,000 Americans who were in Afghanistan when he took office will become 100,000 by next year, a war reborn in what the president is describing as his own image, his own strategic terms, but which is justified fundamentally by what sounds like the Bush doctrine, the administration admitting that we are not actually threatened now as a nation by Afghanistan,
9: Obviously, uh, the good news that Americans should uh, feel at least good about in Afghanistan is that the Al-Qaeda presence is uh, very diminished. The maximum estimate is uh, less than 100 operating in the country. No bases, no ability to launch attacks on either us or our allies.
11: No ability to attack us or our allies. Afghanistan poses no threat to us. And yet, our war there is being doubled and tripled in size. Why? It's because we think there might be a threat from Afghanistan in the future, if a safe haven for terrorism there reemerges in the future. In other words,
2: if we wait for threats to fully materialize, we will have waited too long. We must take the battle to the enemy, disrupt his plans, and confront the worst threats before they emerge.
11: Is the massive escalation of the war in Afghanistan announced tonight? President Obama's own implementation of the preventive war Bush doctrine that Sarah Palin couldn't understand and that no one's really been able to justify. This war is not about threats to the United States from Afghanistan. To the extent that it is justified by preventing threats to us from emerging from Pakistan sometime in the future, that's preventive war. That's the Bush doctrine in all its Orwellian extremism. To the extent, though, that this war is not about some potential future threat, but a real current one, like the president described tonight, a current one that, he didn't say it bluntly, but he meant it, one that exists in Pakistan. To the extent that our 100,000 troops in Afghanistan are there simply to backstop and contain the real war against the real threat next door in Pakistan, then tell me this, how are we fighting our war in Pakistan? We're fighting it using the CIA, which effectively functions as a fifth secret branch of the U.S. military.
0: We now return to the present.
1: I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh as we continue to look at the situation in Afghanistan and the U.S. withdrawal. On Wednesday, President Biden defended uh, his handling of the withdrawal in an interview on ABC News with George Stephanopoulos.
2: No mistakes. No, I I, I don't think it could have been handled in a way that we're going to go back in hindsight and look. But the idea that somehow there is a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing. I don't know how that happens.
1: But just last month, on July 8th, Biden rejected the idea Taliban takeover in Afghanistan was inevitable. Several top Democrats have vowed to probe Biden's Afghanistan exit strategy. A report from the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction said the U.S. quote, struggled to develop and implement a coherent strategy over the last 20 years. In 2020, while on the campaign trail, then-candidate Biden acknowledged U.S. officials had lied to the public about the war in Afghanistan. For more, we're joined by Craig Whitlock, investigative reporter for The Washington Post, long-covered Afghanistan, the author of the new book, Just Out, The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. It uh, goes beyond Biden to look at how the past three presidents, um, Trump, Obama, and George W. Bush, deceived the public year after the year about the longest war in U.S. history. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Craig. The whole debate—and Congressional Congress now saying they're going to look at this exit strategy obscures what the U.S. did in Afghanistan for the past 20 years. And that's what you so deeply look at in the Afghanistan papers. First, describe what they are.
12: The Afghanistan papers are hundreds of interviews, notes, and transcripts of interviews that the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan had conducted with key officials who played uh, you know important roles in the war over 20 years. Uh, these were documents that uh, were not made public until the Washington Post had to sue the government to obtain them under the Freedom of Information Act. It took us three years to obtain these documents, but what they show is, as you stated earlier, the public narrative was that the U.S. was always making progress. All these presidents said we were going to win the war. And yet, in private, these officials were were extremely pessimistic. Uh, They said they didn't have a campaign plan. They didn't have a strategy. They didn't understand Afghanistan and thought the war was unwinnable.
6: Craig, I guess the the, the the critical question is, given all of the research that you did and what you found revealed in the Afghanistan papers, were you surprised at all that uh, Afghanistan fell so quickly to the Taliban, really in a matter of days, provincial capital after provincial capital, and then Kabul on Sunday?
12: I was surprised that it happened so quickly. Uh, that said, I think it was pretty obvious that the Afghan government really didn't have any popular support or very little, it's certainly been well documented that the Afghan security forces, the army and the paramilitary police, had real problems that the U.S. government had tried, had spent more than $85 billion to train and equip this force, and yet it, it was barely functioning at the end. I think what we saw in the last week were just commander after commander in the Afghan forces saw which way the wind was blowing knew the Afghan government wasn't going to last. And so they switched sides very quickly, either under threat from the Taliban or, you know, for for offers of money. The Afghans, this is not uncommon for them. They know they've had to suffer under 40 years of civil war or fighting with outside powers. And to survive, they've had to very quickly judge who's going to win and how they should end up on the right side.
1: Craig Woodlock. there are two um, issues here uh, over this 20 years. And if you could take us back through time, because, again, what we are not getting is the brutality of the U.S. war and occupation, uh, and the Taliban um, continually saying their main goal was to throw out the foreign invader. Um, talk about what the U.S. covered up. Then there's the issue of the corruption of the government and the U.S. involvement with that, the Afghan government. But the record of the massacres, um, the working with warlords, the oppression caused by the occupation.
12: Yeah, it's a pretty—it's not a pretty history, the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. As you mentioned, involvement with the warlords. Part of the problem was that the population in Afghanistan saw the United States as allying itself with warlords who had who had pretty brutal records during the 1990s and certainly a, a long and deep history of corruption. And here was the United States partnering with them uh, and, frankly, spending billions of dollars on the Afghan government, which went into the warlords' pockets. The population didn't see the United States as bringing democracy and equal rights to Afghanistan. They saw them as Propping up uh, a corrupt and illegitimate government. You know, the Taliban certainly has a, a very brutal record. I don't mean to minimize that in any regard, particularly how they treat women and girls. But in the end, many Afghans, particularly in rural areas, uh, said, "Look, we don't like the Taliban, but we really hate our own government. At least the Taliban, we see them as Afghans. Uh, they're they're more sympathetic to our religious beliefs, and you know they're not here." To help with the foreigners So I think in the end A lot of people saw the Taliban As the lesser of two evils
1: and let's go back to the very beginning, right, when George W. Bush invaded Afghanistan. Uh, in that period, when Rumsfeld was the defense secretary, you had the Taliban saying they would surrender in December um, uh, if just uh, Mohammed Omar was allowed to live with dignity in Kandahar, where they established the Taliban. Uh, Rumsfeld said no. Um, You have even before that, in October, when uh, Afghanistan said, we will hand over Osama bin Laden, Bush said no.
12: I do think the Taliban offers to hand over bin Laden were maybe a bit overstated. They, They had many opportunities to do that. And I think they weren't sincere. The question I think you're raising, which is an important one, is there were opportunities to try and bring the Taliban into the fold after the U.S. invasion in 2001. Uh, the Taliban government was toppled relatively quickly. But in retrospect, that was the moment to try and bring these factions together in Afghanistan, to try and have some kind of stable consensus of a political system. Instead, the United States thought it had won a clear-cut military victory. It thought it had not just defeated the Taliban, but vanquished them. Uh, it lumped them together in the same boat with al-Qaeda as terrorist groups, and so it just saw no need to negotiate with them. The problem was that over time, the Taliban gradually came back, because unlike al-Qaeda, they were really woven into the fabric of Afghan society. This wasn't a group you could eliminate, you could vanquish. They had too much support in certain parts of the country. And I think that was the the miscalculation the Americans made from the beginning, was the need to bring stability to Afghanistan. You had to bring all the actors into the fold.
1: We're talking to Craig Whitlock, and he's author of the new book, The Afghanistan Papers. Um, The Intercept reports, Craig, that— Military stocks outperformed the stock market overall by 58 percent during the Afghanistan War, including Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics. Quote, From the perspective of some of the most powerful people in the U.S., the Afghanistan War may have been an extraordinary success, notably the boards of directors of all five defense contractors um, in Afghanistan. Um, uh, if you can talk further about the U.S. poured—and I'm sure it's much more than this—the um, L.A. Times saying, at a cost of $83 billion, Afghan security forces collapse so quickly and completely, the ultimate beneficiary of the American investment has so quickly and completely uh, turns out to be the Taliban. So, the U.S. knows exactly what they have. In the Afghanistan papers, what did you find in the relationship of military contractors also driving this war forward? It wasn't just Bush. It was Obama, then Trump. And Biden certainly knew about the Obama years because he was vice president at that time. And he's the one who said, yes, you have been lied to the American people.
12: That's right. And the height of spending— during the war was during the Obama administration, when he sent a surge of 100,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan in 2010, 2011, 2012. That's when we were spending just enormous amounts of money in Afghanistan, not just to wage the war, but to try and build up the country. And frankly, the Afghanistan paper shows far more money than the country could possibly hope to absorb. It just didn't have the capacity to use all this money. A lot of the money was also siphoned off by corruption, uh, by Afghan warlords, uh, by defense contractors. And by defense contractors, that could be anything from major American contractors who were profiting off the war to local contractors in Afghanistan, international ones that supplied supplies, ammunition, food, transport. The war was a very expensive war to wage in a landlocked country halfway around the world. And the United States spent more than a trillion dollars on its operations there. Uh, There's not a whole lot to show for that. But a lot of people, whether it's Afghans or defense contractors, or frankly, warlords and the Taliban, profited off that war for 20 years.
0: The following is On the Media from 2019.
3: On the very same day that the war in Afghanistan began, the spin began too. Ari Fleischer, the president's spokesman, came out in a very
13: terse,
2: direct statement, said we are beginning another front in our war against terrorism so that freedom can prevail over fear. We did not ask for this mission, but we will fulfill it. The name of today's military operation is Enduring Freedom. Freedom?
3: Not really. But Enduring Oh, yeah. The air campaign is in its 20th day today. The bombing campaign is causing
9: more civilian casualties and more public protest.
2: address more than 10,000 soldiers at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, home of the 101st Airborne Division. We fight now and we will keep on fighting until our victory is complete. The mission is not only important, it is also achievable.
3: We can and will accomplish this mission
13: so far we believe we have
4: been making gradual but important progress
3: progress has been made uh, to try to advance uh, security secretary robert Gates says progress in the war with afghanistan
9: is exceeding his expectation we can say with confidence that america will complete its mission in afghanistan and by the end of next year our war in afghanistan
3: will be over and though premonitions of a Vietnam-like quagmire were voiced early and often, back in 2001, then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld cracked jokes about the very premise. It looked like nothing was happening. Indeed, it looked like we were in a, altogether now, quagmire. But as Washington Post investigative reporter Craig Whitlock revealed, a once-secret internal history of the war found that the quagmire was and is real. The Afghanistan papers, as the post is calling this monumental reporting project, was 3 years in the making. The project was initiated in the Pentagon by the Office of the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, but it took two lawsuits and untold records requests to eventually yield the 2000 pages that document 400 interviews with generals, diplomats, aid workers, and Afghan officials. And like the Pentagon papers, that 48 years ago, laid bare the government's strategic blunders and lies about Vietnam. This federal reporting project reveals the efforts of three administrations over nearly two decades to spin expensive, bloody failure into success. For
13: many years, both under Bush and Obama and somewhat under Trump, the generals would always stick to the same talking points. We're in a tough fight, there are challenges. We don't know how it's going to go exactly, but we're making progress. We're turning the corner. Sometimes they would say we're winning. And that contrasted just 180 degrees from what some of these same people were saying in what we call the
3: Afghanistan papers. This is Major General Jeffrey Schlosser briefing the press in September 2008 after calling for reinforcements.
13: We are not losing it. The enemy cannot win uh, even given what we have here now. When you said you are not losing, are you saying that you are winning?
3: <laughs> Look, I, you know, the truth is is that I, I, I feel like, you know, we're making some steady progress. It's a slow win,
13: I guess, is probably uh, what we're accomplishing right on over here. <laughs> Slowly.
3: Slowly. It was a laugh line even a decade ago. But if the press was skeptical... Is it fair to say, Craig, that we were institutionally also uncritical in passing these Pollyanna evaluations from the government along?
13: I think the problem is sometimes we would feel obliged to carry along the comments from people like General Schlosser as he said them. Now, usually we would include context. We would note that at the time General Schlosser was saying this, that U.S. troops were suffering a lot of casualties, that field commanders were asking for reinforcements, that bombings by the Taliban were on the increase. So I think the news media in Afghanistan and covering the Pentagon did a faithful job in chronicling the setbacks and the failures and the problems, what I think, again, is different about these Afghanistan papers is it's the people who were responsible for the policy finally were getting admission from people in charge that all those things they said all along weren't
3: true. It seems like one of the complications was that success was a moving target. Were we there to eradicate al-Qaeda? Were we there to rout the Taliban? to build security infrastructure, to build democratic institutions, to fight corruption, to empower tribal leaders, to build physical infrastructure like roads and schools, encourage women's rights, wipe out the opium trade, win hearts and minds of the Afghan populace. Not so much mission creep, but like 10 different missions, some mutually
13: exclusive. That's right. Back in 2001, there was enormous Public support for President Bush's decision to retaliate for 911 and to extinguish the Al Qaeda threat as best we could. That mission was largely accomplished within six months in Afghanistan, but we stayed, and that's when things started to go awry. The people who were in charge of the war, in charge of the policy, admit that we lost our way. How would we know when we accomplished all these other objectives? They last forever. We're never going to turn Afghanistan into Switzerland. There's no doubt that women are treated very poorly in Afghanistan, but that wasn't why we originally sent troops. And it's not realistic to say we're going to have a victory
3: against the Taliban. How many lives and how much treasure have been expended in 19 years tilting at these 9 or 10 windmills? 2,300 U.S.
13: military personnel have been killed in Afghanistan. More than 20,000 wounded. More than 3,000 U.S. defense contractors have been killed. About 1,500 NATO and coalition troops have lost their lives. The Afghans have taken by far the biggest brunt of this war. 50,000, 60,000 Afghan security forces have lost their lives. The casualty numbers for the Afghan army and police are so high that the government keeps that number classified. They're worried it would be so demoralizing if they put the true numbers out. But the best estimates are that more than 160,000 people have lost their lives since 2001 due to the fighting in Afghanistan.
3: For only a
13: trillion dollars. Or more is probably more accurate. The best estimates... We've spent close to a trillion dollars on the military operations and trying to rebuild Afghanistan. Those don't take into account the indirect costs, such as VA care for our troops who came back wounded. And since there's more than 20,000 of those, we're going to be caring for those people for many years. The cost of the interest we had to take on the debt, the cost of intelligence operations, all these things, it's really hard to add up, but at a minimum, we've spent a trillion dollars, but the real costs are going to be
3: many times that. We didn't just go in there killing people, although we killed a lot of people. Uh, We poured a lot of cash into Afghanistan, spread it out among tribal leaders and various kinds of infrastructure programs and government agencies. And it had the effect of taking the smoldering embers of corrupt culture and turning it into a 70 alarm Blaze.
13: It did over time. President Bush tried very hard to get the United Nations and other allies to take on the task of trying to build up Afghanistan. That didn't work very well. So, after a few years, the Bush administration started spending some more money because they realized that Afghanistan was such a fragile state that the Taliban could come back and take power again. And then when President Obama took office, he took The complete opposite approach of Bush, which was we need to get the population on the side of this nascent Afghan government, so we're going to spend – out the wazoo, forgive my description, people in these interviews we obtained said people back in Washington didn't care what they were spending it on as long as they could show that they had spent it. A congressional delegation came to Afghanistan and was asking, how were they doing with these rebuilding projects? There was one military officer who said to the congressman, you're asking me to spend $3 million a day in this Afghan district the size of a U.S. county. Could you do this at home? And the congressman said, no, of course not. And he says, you're asking me to do this in a place with mud huts and no windows. Afghanistan was never a place that had a clean, well-run government. But now with these billions and billions of dollars flowing in, the opportunities for corruption were unavoidable.
0: And back once again to the present.
1: Spencer Ackerman, talk about the role the U.S. war and occupation, the brutality of the U.S. airstrikes, the torture at Bagram, the night raids played in gaining new recruits for the Taliban.
10: The United States tends not to attribute its brutality to any of the circumstances that it comes to bemoan when they manifest in the world. And Afghanistan is certainly a tragic example of that. The fact that after 9-11, the United States, um, in its political and journalistic and intellectual elites, generally speaking, refused to accept that there was a direct and tragic and awful historic consequence of its destabilization of Afghanistan in the 1980s to the degree that um, Taliban facilitation of Osama bin Laden in the country helped uh, the execution of the 9-11 plot, which it's important to note did not involve Afghans and was not staged from Afghanistan, nor was it even planned in Afghanistan. It was far more uh, planned in Germany. Um, Nevertheless, that was an early foreboding Of what we would see over the next 20 years, not just in Afghanistan, but throughout the war on terror, a disconnection an unwillingness to face that America's violent and imperial actions breed their own next generation of enemies. That was on display once the United States went back into Afghanistan and throughout the Afghanistan war, even during periods where um, counterinsurgency campaigns, at least on paper. Uh, paid lip service to the idea that protecting Afghan lives and, uh, you know, property and so forth uh, was going to ultimately be decisive in the war. It never acted that way. It never acted as if um, what the uh, the point of the war was the protection of Afghan lives. It uh, more often acted in such a way that it did not draw distinctions uh, between Afghan lives Um, And Afghan enemies. And amongst the the major reasons for this is not necessarily like a specific decision uh, to target Afghan civilians, but an inability to understand the country, understand its dynamics and understand the rather complicated relationships in many ways between people who fight for the Taliban and the Taliban itself or people who aid the Taliban under threat to their own life or threat to their family or simply seek to endure The war as so many people throughout so many wars simply aspire to simply by not taking action that uh, harmed the taliban because they understood the consequences that could um that, that they could experience over time all of these things uh strengthened the taliban made the taliban seem like once again a viable alternative to the United States, and then on a different level, the United States's contribution—and um, not just the United States alone's—contribution um, to uh, the misery in Afghanistan came through the corruption that it always blamed. On the Afghans, but was a significant driver of itself. Development experts, development aid, and development money poured into Afghanistan far beyond a consideration of what a devastated Afghan economy could, in fact, absorb. And some of this money was very deliberately flooded in from the CIA to pay off warlords to ensure that they would ultimately, uh, Uh, be responsive to American interests, which would often be violent interests, which would often be things like, as uh, the Joint Special Operations Command would perform throughout the Afghanistan War, um, uh, army special forces in particular throughout the Afghanistan War, raids on people's houses suspected of being, aiding, or facilitating the Taliban. Um, And again, the Taliban, not even al-Qaeda, not the thing that attacked the United States, certainly not the core of Al Qaeda that plotted, planned and executed 9-11. The United States was now at an extended war with a one time uh, harborer ally of Al Qaeda rather than the thing itself, responsible for all of Afghanistan, but never acting responsibly toward the Afghan people.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with The Intercept laying out some history of meddling in Afghanistan. Counterspin made the connections going back to the Cold War to explain foreign invasions of Afghanistan. The Michael Brooks Show in 2019 looked back at the ever-shifting Afghanistan policy from Bush through Obama and Trump. The Rachel Maddow Show in 2009 traced the legacy of the Bush Doctrine through to Obama's decision to add more troops to Afghanistan in the early years of his administration. Democracy Now! looked back at the Afghanistan Papers revealing the decades of lies about the execution of the war in Afghanistan. On the Media in 2019 reported contemporaneously on the Afghanistan papers, and Democracy Now! explored the role of the destabilization of Afghanistan over decades, helping to create the next generation of anti-American fighters. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The Daily Show with Jon Stewart back in 2009, who drew a direct comparison between the surge of 30,000 troops directed by Bush and Obama's speech years later explaining his rationale for making the exact same decision. And Newsbeat in 2019 discussed the tradition of misleading the public on the war and the abdication of the duty of members of Congress to put an end to it. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a Financial Hardship membership, because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you.
4: Hi Jay, this is Rich from Oregon also known as liberal thinking. I represent a strong progressive view within the Democratic Party. Bipartisanship is often presented as good politics. It might be in limited situations. However, bipartisanship is bad for our country. The idea of bipartisanship is that Democrats should work with Republicans in Congress to get things done. The problem is that the Republican Party is not a legitimate political party. They don't have the good of the country at heart. Virtually every major effort by that party is designed to exploit the American people for profit and power. By definition, any work we might do with the Republican Party undermines our country. Nevertheless, I would be interested in working with Republicans once the Republican Party is thoroughly reformed. Reform would mean their party would want what's best for the country. How would we know they have truly reformed? The Republican Party would, for example, acknowledge that global warming is an existential threat to our lives and that it is caused by human actions, primarily the burning of fossil fuels. The party would then put forward a realistic plan to combat global warming and take active steps to get that plan adopted by our government and implemented by society. The Republican party would, for example, acknowledge that everyone has a right to proper healthcare. The party would then put forward a realistic plan for fair, affordable, and universal healthcare in the United States. The Republican Party needs to take similar steps on other important issues to show that they have the good of the country at heart. They would demonstrate a commitment to democracy, the rule of law, and human rights. Until that time I don't want to hear Democratic politicians plug bipartisanship. But what we see are people like Joe Manchin, who continue to support rules in the Senate that prevent a simple majority of senators passing legislation. Beginning on the 15th of September, unless Manchin has changed his position on the filibuster, I plan to start a movement to oust him from the Democratic Party. This is a controversial move, but Manchin has failed to get meaningful legislation passed on a bipartisan basis, and his intransigence on the filibuster is sinking Democratic efforts to secure our democracy. Without substantial reform, voting rights legislation will die in the Senate. We cannot afford to allow one or two Democratic senators to stall this important legislation. But if we don't reform the filibuster now, Republicans will prevent the Democratic majority from passing vital legislation at this critical time. Unfortunately, Joe Manchin is not alone in his efforts to delay voting rights until it's too late. He's aided right now by the president, who ran on the platform of bipartisanship. It is Joe Biden's support for bipartisanship that gives Joe Manchin cover to delay filibuster reform. We need to push Mr. Biden to change his stance on bipartisanship. It was always a bad idea, and it is now undermining his presidency and democracy in America. Please ask your Democratic representatives in Washington to renounce bipartisanship and get behind Democratic efforts to protect voting rights and pass other popular legislation. Well over 95% of American voters want to maintain democracy in the U.S. That is the overwhelmingly popular position. Our politicians should support it as well. You can find posts by liberal thinking on the filibuster, bipartisanship, and other topics on dailycoast.com in the All Daily Coast Progressives group. Join our group and make your own contributions. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you, Jay, for posting the sound clip for your listeners. I'm glad you included this in your awesome work.
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. So we just heard from Rich, and and he said lots of uncontroversial things about the need to have democracy and how politicians should also be in favor of democracy. So I'm just going to zero in on, on the one piece that uh, has to do with the campaign he's trying to launch and, uh, and that he didn't fill in much detail on. He talked about wanting to remove Joe Manchin from the Democratic Party, and I know what that sounds like, but he might mean running a primary campaign against Manchin and removing him electorally that way. But regardless of what he means, this is a perfect opportunity to bring up the importance of a theory of change, and I take any opportunity I can get to remind everyone about the importance of having a theory of change. So that, I think, is the first question to ask, and he didn't fill us in, so I'm not making any assumptions about Rich's plan or goals or whether he has a theory of change or not, and if he does, whether it's good or bad or anything— But my first question is, what are we talking about exactly? What is the theory of change behind the campaign to make Manchin not be a Democrat? Is it that we want to defeat him electorally in in a primary campaign, or is it just a goal to have him remove the D from after his name? And depending on the answer to that question, there's a whole cascade of further questions about, okay, then what will then happen? What is the next step? If the initial goal is accomplished, what comes next? And how does this series of events lead us to a place where we would much prefer to be as compared to our current status quo? If it is defeating him electorally in a primary campaign, then presumably that means that a different candidate will have won the seat and they will be to some degree more progressive than Joe Manchin is, more willing to work with with the rest of the party, stopping holding up progress in a variety of ways. However, if the answer is the other way and we just want him to stop being a Democrat but continue to be in office, then I am very curious about the theory of change behind that and how that positively impacts the country going forward. He mentioned that Joe Manchin is an impediment to progress in a variety of ways, and he is a member of the party, but is stopping the party from doing what nearly every other member uh, at least says they ...would like to do, whether that's true or not. We've actually addressed that on the show before. A lot of people might actually like Joe Manchin's existence in the party because he's willing to take the heat and prevent things from happening so that those other people don't have to take... Votes that their constituents would appreciate, but their funders might not. And so they can say, yes, yes, I'm very much in favor of this thing that Joe Manchin won't let us do. Gosh, darn it. And they are never forced to turn that vocalization into a vote. So it can definitely get squishy if if there wasn't Joe Manchin there, they might have to invent him <laughs> is what I'm saying. So if we just had Joe Manchin not be a Democrat anymore, What would be the concrete benefits? Leaving the speculation about what other politicians might do. Leaving that aside, that's not what I'm getting at. But if he just wasn't a Democrat anymore, how would that help the progressive movement? So these are all the kinds of questions that you need to be asking yourself or others who put forward plans like this to understand how they have sort of set a goal, a future goal, and then worked backwards to a reasonable strategy that has a reasonable chance of working out if the effort goes to plan. So if the effort is to push Joe Manchin out of the Democratic Party, but he's still in office, I don't know where we go from there. I, that that feels like a dead end to me. The only immediate result that I can think of is that the Democrats would then, uh, or or very possibly, lose control of the Senate, lose the chairmanships and, and control of... What is to be debated, what is to be voted on, those sorts of things. So possibly Rich's aim, and this is what needs to be explained further, is if we can push Joe Manchin to become an independent who caucuses with the Democrats, then that, I guess, at least wouldn't create harm to progressive goals, legislative policy goals and could then just be a sort of symbolic victory over a, a, a politician who's too conservative to be in the Democratic Party. Maybe there's more to it. Maybe it's not just symbolic, but I would need someone who's thought longer about it to to explain the theory of change, which is the whole point. So anyway, that's just a, a little example of of the kinds of questions that need to be asked and, and how strategies need to be stress-tested against questions. I'm not saying that Rich hasn't already done all of this. He just didn't explain his theory in, in detail to us, which gave me the opportunity to step in and, and do it as maybe just a demonstration exercise. So hopefully we'll hear back from him on on more of his thoughts. If anyone else has thoughts on this or uh, literally anything else you might want to comment on or question Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, and occasional bonus show co-hosting and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleftcom slash support or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app if that's your style. Membership is how you get instant access to our excellent bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in our regular episodes. For details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.